Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb, and I have an exciting interview for you today. I'm going to be talking with Fred Hogg author of the new book of ice and men how we've used cold to transform humanity uh covers everything from cocktail ice to the ancient history of ice houses uh it it gets into so many uh wonderful areas so uh, i hope you enjoy this interview this chat i had with fred a tremendous amount of fun uh, just as the book is a tremendous amount of fun hi fred thanks for coming on the show thank you very much for having me it's really really pleasure to be here Excellent. Yeah, the, the, the book is, uh, is so much fun. I, I just Thank read you. it the other day. Of Ice and Men, How We've Used Cold to Transform Humanity. Uh, a wonderful, insightful, and surprising look at humanity's history with ice. Humanity's propensity to take ice for granted is a recurring theme in your book. And I, I just was wondering, were you prepared for just how often it has been taken for granted in recorded history? That's a really, really interesting question. Um, and to one degree, I was, because having sort of started out in, in my career as an ancient historian, one finds oneself very limited by what people, not just what people choose to write about, but what survives. Um, so when you're dealing with, with, with the ancient world, it's not just that people have the topics that they think are interesting and that they care about, but we also have to deal with this whole big problem of textual transmission and, and a number of books vast number of books just do not come down to us from the ancient world. And some of the ones that do come down by very, very um, strange ways. If I remember correctly, Catullus's poetry was found under a barrel in the 14th century. Um, and that was the only copy that came through somehow. And, and it's, it, it's wonderful stuff. But when it comes to stuff like, like ice and, and, and functional things, it requires 
on the one hand, an ancient writer to be interested, on the other hand, for it to be copied. So, for example, we know an enormous amount about aqueducts because a book by a guy called Frontinus survives. Uh, if it hadn't, we would just have the archaeology, but as it is, we have the book and we know how they work. With ice, I knew that the the sources would be would be slim for the ancient stuff, and that's fair enough. And you spend a lot of time trawling around just trying to find a glimpse, a mention, a something here or there. But you know, it's it's um, but that's part of the challenge. That's part of what makes it fun. Now, this is probably a question you're being asked a lot, but just in general, how did you come to write a book about ice? <laughs> um, well. Basically, what happened was I, I hadn't really thought about it as a topic to write about. And uh, my wife's a cookery writer and cookery teacher, and she was doing a class back when we lived in London, and she asked me to help out and come and make some cocktails for the, for, for the customers. And as I was shaking up these drinks, I happened to remark that if you don't have ice, you can't really have a cocktail. And one of the punters said, prove it. <laughs> And, and basically, that's what I've set out to try and do. And as soon as I started sort of delving into it, um, I realized what an extraordinary rich um, seam of information it is, because it is that the big sort of unsung hero and monster of modern life. And it's changing us. I, I, I think it, it's quite profound. Um, I was reading, uh, what was it, uh, last week, I think, that the eighth billion person has just been born on planet Earth. This is in no small part down to the extraordinary benefits that ice have brought humanity, both in terms of our uh, nutrition, in terms of medicine, in terms of so many things, is absolutely supercharged the species. I, since from, from 1945 to now, the species has exploded and it is entirely down to the fact that we are able to feed ourselves so much better because of refrigeration, because of cool chains, because of all of the benefits that ice has brought us. And what burden does that place upon the rest of the system? And I think that's the big question. Yeah, you you uh, you return to the idea multiple times in the book that uh, that ice is inherently linked to civilization, and and you you frequently invoke the the 1986 film adaptation of the Mosquito Coast. Uh, can you uh, remind uh, our listeners of of this film and I suppose of the book and its use of ice? I have to confess, I've never read the book. I've only ever seen the movie, which is a, a, a terrible terrible admission. I know Paul Theroux is a wonderful writer, but I haven't read it. But in the, 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 the movie version directed by the wonderful Australian director, Peter Weir, the lead character, Ali Fox, as played by Harrison Ford, has this very catching line of ice is civilization and then sets out into the rainforest of Belize to build an ice machine to bring ice to the people. That idea has always struck me. I, I, I first saw that film, gosh, this dates me now, I saw that film on general release, so, gosh, that was, what, 86, as you said. I think yeah. it came out in 87 in the UK because we were often, at that point, a little bit behind the United States. But, yes, it, I, and I think, I think that he has an absolute point. Ice has always been there from the very beginning of civilization. The ancient Sumerians, the very first civilized society, had ice. 
which is something that is is quite baffling to grasp, given as it was, I, the city of Uruk, the first city, is in the, the deserts of southern Iraq. And, you know, it, were you to visit it today, you'd find this barren, windswept, desolate landscape. And it's very hard to imagine, A, that it was once a blossoming, fertile place, and B, that they could make ice there. And it's baking, it's 45 degrees in the shade. But ice was there. Ice was uh, inherent in their lives. We don't know how they use it. We just know that it was there, which is uh, is ever often one of the big problems with archaeological sources. They'll tell you a thing, but they won't give you a context. Um, but but sorry, I'm I'm rabbiting on. I'm I'm sorry, Rob. <laughs> no, no, this is wonderful. Yeah, because uh, I, that was that was what I was going to ask about next was the. Uh, the, the the ancient Sumerian ice houses because this was this really blew me away just imagining well it blew uh, me away too I've got to be yeah. honest yeah so is it thought that the ancient Sumerians invented ice house technology or do or where do we just don't do we know have? like I was saying you know we have in the year thirteen of the reign of Shulgi they built an ice house that's what the tablet tells us um, and that's it. I'm not a Sumerian expert at all. I, I, I had to read up on quite a lot of stuff and I, and I still don't fully understand it. But when we look at those kind of cuneiform tablets from the ancient Middle and Near East, particularly as we get into the next section of where ice rears its head and um, a kingdom called Mari, which is uh, was situated in Eastern Syria um, around about like the, the 15, 1400s BC, they mention an ice house in their tablets. But when we get to that era, what we do have is an extraordinary level of correspondence uh, written between the great kingdoms of the Middle and Near East, uh, from the Hittites to the Assyrians, to the Mari, to the Egyptians, and they're, they're all broadly in Assyrian. And, and, and we have some of these archives. Um, the one in Mari was discovered in the 30s, uh, is a, a huge insight into how that world operated and how it worked. And these kings would, would sort of, you know, write to each other, you know, uh, to the great king of Assyria, my brother, how how you doing? Um, or, or or that kind of thing. But and, and but again, the ice house in Mari is mentioned obliquely. We know that it was there. We we don't know if there was only one or if there were many in their various different cities, but we know they had access to ice. And we know, again, um, it was a luxury item. It wasn't something that was there for everybody. It was a prestige product. And you, you mentioned these various other ice houses and um, ice pits that pop up in, in other civilizations. Mm. Does it, does it seem like this is a case of cultural transmission or it's just kind of like independent inventions from people who, uh, or people or kingdoms that are in, in areas where they have access to snow and then are figuring out ways to uh, keep that snow around? You have to have access. I mean, when we, when we look at the, uh, the Persian ice houses or yachtkals, these are specially designed structures that um, operate on evaporative cooling. And they, in those kind of desert environments where the temperature drops incredibly fast and, um, as the sun goes down, you can create conditions in a controlled space where you can freeze things. So that is a technology specific to their environments. And we're talking 
700 BC, 500 BC or thereabouts. When you start looking at ancient Greece um, or um, civilizations like that, they have access to ice from mountains. They will bring the snow down. Um, and we and we see this technology so in, in Italy um, and in Spain into the early modern era, and it doesn't really change a whole lot. You, some poor bloke, generally a bloke, has to carry the snow down in a thing on his back. You pack it down hard into the ground, into a pit that's insulated with branches and then covered and then sold. And you could do this, um, you can do this in the Lebanon because you can get the, um, the ice from the mountains at the, um, at the top of the Becca Valley. You can do it in Greece. You can do it in, in Italy. The Apennines was the big source of ice for Rome. You can do it in southern Spain. As hot as it is in Seville, you still have mountains quite close by where you, should, where you can get the ice from. But if you don't have that access, it's not going to happen. And India is quite an interesting one because, because, because again, they were able to do an evaporative cooling technique with uh, special ponds. And as the, the cool air would come off the mountains, you, they could place clay pots out and the water would freeze and they would have ice for the next day. But again, this is a short-lived resource. It's not going to, to, to be around for very long and, and therefore is the preserve of the wealthy for, for really up until the 19th century. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now you, you get into we get into this area where there 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 is there are more mentions of uh, of ice and uh, one that I thought was was particularly interesting. You, you mentioned first century CE Roman philosopher Seneca and oh, his disdain yes. for ice sold in Roman markets. Do do we know why he disapproved? I think <laughs> we don't know. I I, I I don't know why he disapproved. But Seneca, from everything that I know, I, 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 what little I know of Seneca, he was a fairly sniffy old chap. He was, um, <laughs> he, he, yes, he was a very proper fellow, was our Seneca, um, uh, which is probably why Nero killed him. Great philosopher, great writer, really, really, really disgusting playwright in terms of the amount of um, blood and gore in his plays. Oh, my God. In his version of Medea, you actually see the babies being thrown from the battlements on stage. I mean, Seneca's plays are mental. And Shakespeare was a very big fan of, of, of Seneca's playwriting, which might explain, explain all the claret and gore and Coriolanus. Um, but he was, yeah, Seneca, Shakespeare was a big fan of Seneca's dramaturgy. Uh, <laughs> but he's... He 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 does he does like to you know him I, that, you know juvenile as well. There there are a bunch of those guys around that first century who do like to have quite snotty opinions about how awful the modern world is, uh, which I suppose is something that hasn't really changed. But yes, he he was not a fan of ice. He thought ice was um was bad for people and that they shouldn't be doing it, which is an idea that 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 would prevail for quite a long time for at least another sort of five, six hundred years after his time, there's a Spanish doctor, Menardes, who's, I think I mentioned the book, who writes about how bad ice can be for you. There's an enormous amount of ink and paper wasted on um, medical literature saying that ice is a bad thing in the 15th and 16th centuries. Yeah, this I, I was intrigued by this the more I read in the book too, because initially I was also reminded of uh, some traditions, I think, in like Chinese traditional medicine, uh, mm. the idea that one should drink hot water as opposed to chilled water. Uh, but then later on in the book, you also mention uh, issues concerning the potential contamination uh, of snow with dirt. The uh, later the idea that you could you, know, you could have um, um, actual outbreaks due to contamination of yes. water ice. 
a lot of the um, and we were talking about the, sort of the Roman stuff and, and all this earlier on a lot of that ice that was sold in in those markets in ancient Greece ancient Rome was actually snow compacted snow and that contains inherently particles of dirt and mud and and, and bits where the market evolves into thanks to a brilliant Bostonian guy called Frederick Tudor is the export of hand cut ice from lakes in New England and these are blocks of solid ice and solid ice is 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 very much more pure than compacted snow and they were shipping this all around the world from Tudor started in 1806 and 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 finally really got it figured out in the 1820s um after the um the war of 1812 was you know that kind of put the kibosh on him for a while. Um, but as the demand increases, you have two problems. Uh, the first is you want to make more ice faster for your stores. So they would do this thing which was called sinking the well, whereby having cut a bunch of ice out, they would also drill extra holes in the top of a pond or lake so that the water would well up and refreeze. But what that would do, would it would capture your footprints between the original layer that you were walking on and the water that welled up. So there would be dirt trapped within the ice, which was not exactly pleasing to the customer. But the bigger problem, as you point out, as time goes on, is pollution. And um, the uptake of ice usage runs parallel alongside with the Industrial Revolution and the various pourings of industrial waste, human waste into the waterways, which were then being harvested for ice. And in one of the most awful cases, there was a mental hospital in upstate New York that used to cut its ice from um, the river downstream of where their effluent pipe ran in and a number of people died. And this is kind of the beginning of the end for natural ice in, as, as a commercial proposition. Now, now, thus far, far, I know a lot of listeners are probably, you know, we're, we're talking about the use of this ice and hello, and listeners. Use is kind of a kind of a novelty, and I, I know I'm I'm imagining drinks with ice in them, drinks with bits of snow in them, and you you get into this. Uh, this this is a really fun part of the book too, talking about like a, a Florentine wine chilling back in the 1340s. Oh yeah. So I, I was thinking about that a lot, but then of course another important iced uh, treat comes up, and that of course is ice cream. Um, yes. What's the, w- w- where do we seem to find like the oldest possible evidence of, of ice cream in the world? Well, there's a lot of mythology wrapped up with ice cream. Um, so stories tell us that um, ice cream was invented in China, and that it was the uh, privilege and unique dessert of the imperial court and nobody else could have it and then the apocrypha goes on to say that marco polo brought the recipe back to italy this absolute the latter bit is absolute rot whether the chinese were 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 eating ice cream as opposed to some cooled chilled things that's kind of hard to pin down but ice cream in the european context doesn't happen until the 17th century there's a lovely sort of piece of mythology that Catherine de' Medici, when she was married to the Dauphin of France, brought the recipe and 
all kinds of other recipes with her into France and re-transformed French cooking, but this is absolute rot. For one reason, she was 13, 14, and probably not wildly interested in recipes at the time, um, and would have been stripped of all things Italian at the border. Uh, for another, the science of how do you make cream freeze was not known in Europe at that point, although it was known in other parts of the world. And it crops up, there's uh, a 12th century Indian treatise which describes how to do it. And it basically involves making a, a brine solution within, to w within which to freeze your, your cream. The thing is, cream freezes about half a degree lower than water. So even if you just put it in ice, you're just going to end up with cold cream. So you've got to find a way to make the chilling scenario even colder. And the best way to do that is to add a shed load of salt to it. Brine freezes at a much lower temperature, so you can get the, the surrounding liquid down to about minus 16 Celsius. And then you have a chance of churning your cream into ice cream. And, and, and Europeans did not figure this out for quite a long time. I think part of the reason being that salt was so expensive. This is one of the things that is quite hard for us to grasp today because, you know, you, you go into the store, store and you can buy a packet of, of, of kosher salt for less than a dollar. The idea of salt being a, a prestige and expensive commodity is something that, that, that baffles us now, but it was. Uh, and it was highly taxed as well. It was very highly taxed. Um, and so as good as ice cream tastes, even if you know the science, you're not going to waste the salt on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm just thinking to my own experiences with making ice cream. Like you end up using a fair amount of salt. Uh, like during it's like a whole box of rock salt to oh at least to create absolutely it, yeah. absolutely do do you hand churn in one of those old fashioned oh no things? I see that I we we tried at one point we tried this device it was like a ball and the idea is you you fill it up and then children will play with the ball and that will eventually produce ice cream via the churning but we found that it's a little too much to ask for for children to continually play with the ball that long <laughs> so it ends up the adults just have to roll it back and forth across the uh the ground until it becomes ice cream we have a magic mix ice cream machine <laughs> we kind of got the, the, the the cheats way but it, it works so coming back to um, opinions against chilled beverages, uh, how did the medieval world view the consumption of chilled beverages, and then where do we see like where do we see a shift in general opinion of chilled beverages and uh, and so forth? Oh man, you're bringing the big questions today, aren't you? Okay, so in the medieval world, um, ice is certainly very present, and we we know that. Um, Particularly in, in in the Middle East, ice was was very popular. We 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 know stories of salad. There's a lovely myth about Saladin sending a sack of ice to Richard the Third when to Richard the First and Richard the First was ill. Probably not true. We know again with Saladin. There's a the fantastic story of him killing a um, a guy called Raymond de Chatillon because Raymond took a glass of iced rose water out of Saladin's hand and drank it when it wasn't given to him. And Saladin kills him stone dead, which is a scene that crops up in Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven, which, interesting movie. Original release cut, not very good. The director's cut, 
which has an extra 45 minutes of stuff in it, is actually quite the movie. And that scene is is very powerful. Um, so we, we, we know um, that ice is, 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 is very present and we know that people argue about whether it's good for people or not. You always have your Senecan kind of people cropping up saying, oh, you know, the party poopers saying, no, we shouldn't have any ice. But it's there. It's there, it's current, it's present. And it's, as I said before, it's, it's the preserve of the wealthy. Um, as to whether there's a shift or not of, of acceptance, I, I, I don't think it ever wasn't accepted. I just think that there were your dissenters in literature who happened to be writing about it and their books survive. With a product like ice, um, the fans aren't going to bother writing. The dissenters will because that sells. And twas ever thus, even, you know, before the invention of the printing press. So the people who are, who are writing and dissenting are, are I, think, I think, in the minority. I can't prove that because there's just not enough information upon which to make a judgment. But that's my hunch. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, um, it, it squares with a lot of what, what we've been talking about with uh, taking ice for granted. Um, and, uh, you know, unless you have an issue with it or, and I guess in, in our experiences, unless there's a problem in actually acquiring it, then you begin to realize what, how, how marvelous it is. Well, well, exactly. And, 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 and you sort of see that in the tropics, you know, people, that's why Frederick Tudor hit on such a genius idea when he started shipping it to the Caribbean and then further afield because you had no ready source. I mean, in, in, in Jamaica, I'm, I'm half Jamaican. My mother's from Antigua Bay. We have the beautiful blue mountains, but they don't get snow on them. They're, they're high enough, but you know, it's too tropical. It's never going to happen. So let's, let's get back to cocktails. Uh, I was, uh, I was very excited when you brought it up. I almost wanted to shift ahead to the, the cocktail discussion at that point. But, um, <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. To your point, like we think about about mixed beverages, especially, and, and and we instantly think about ice. We may, and then there's so many ways to add ice. You know, particular shapes mm. of cube, the different sort of grains of crushed ice. Uh, oh, uh, do, do you have a particular favorite? Well, it depends on what the drink is. To be honest with you, if, if it's like a sort of old fashioned, a nice large, big cube. Um, you know, if it, if it, if it's something else, then that there may be a bit more crushed. I'm a big fan of a, of, of a good stirred martini. I know that some cocktail enthusiasts are so wild for the, uh, uh for the pearl ice or sometimes called here in the States, the, the sonic ice that, uh, I've seen memes about like you, you, about leaving the bar if the, uh, if that particular grain of ice is not available. <laughs> I think that that's. I think that's a little poncy if we're honest. I mean, I'm a dive bar kind of a guy. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not that fussed about, about it. But that said, that said, I, I do have a friend of, in Los Angeles, a barkeep there, and he, he designs ice. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and he has an ice business and makes bespoke cubes of, of various shapes, including these beautiful sort of globes of ice that are about like three inches across. Um, and they're wonderful, wonderful things. You can't help but be impressed by that. But I'm a simple boy. But let's talk. Let, but let's talk cocktails, Rob. Come on. Where's the big question? <laughs> let's go. All right. Well, um, it, eventually, you also you bring up Jerry Thomas's 1862 Bartender's Guide. Yes, um, one of the world's great books. Cocktail ice? Well, he only mentions ice once in the book, and he says in the introduction, he says, 
ice should be wiped clean and set aside. And then he doesn't mention it again, beyond the fact that it's in all the recipes, but he doesn't talk about ice again. It's such a commonplace by the time he writes that book. It's ridiculous. This, this, this was, this, you, you asked me earlier on about the way into this book. And, you know, I, I've, I've done my, my time in bars. I, I worked in bars when I was a student to pay my way through college and, and all the rest of it. I, I, so I, I've had Jerry Thomas on my shelf for a long time. Because I've had the book for so long, I suppose, this kind of blew my mind. It was like, what? Wait, Jerry, where's the ice? What the hell is going on, man? Uh, I just, you know, um, I, I couldn't quite get my head around it. You know, 1862, he writes that. Frederick Tudor starts trading his ice out of Boston in 1806. That gap of time, what's that? 54 years, 56 years? Uh, my math is atrocious. Please forgive me. Ice has become everyday. It's become an, an ordinary, unremarkable thing. And it, this, to me, blows my actual mind. Yeah, I found myself wondering if, if it was just like ice was ice at that point, and there just hadn't been a lot of innovation. Uh, it was just you were sort of happy to have what you had? or No, no well, the, well, the innovation is, 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 is Mr. Tudor. And he starts shipping, like I just said, in 1806 to Martinique, which doesn't go very well for him. He hasn't got his his organization fully sorted. He hasn't got an ice house built there to receive his cargo. It largely melts on the dock. Um, so he tries again the next year, and he goes to Cuba, and that goes rather better. But then things start going a bit awry. Um, I, he, he manages the, the first few years. The War of 1812 starts in, of course, as its name suggests, 1812, the seas are closed. The seas were closed earlier than that um, in 1807 because the Americans didn't want to have their seamen captured by the British and pressed into the British Navy who were fighting the French at that time. So there was a, a whole thing going on with that, which made it quite tricky for him. He gets into terrible, terrible, terrible debt to the extent that he's sent to prison for it. And his father manages to get some people together and have a whip round and they bail him out. And he gets back into business and he starts, um, I think it's Charleston first and then Savannah in the South. He starts shipping ice and he also, he doesn't just ship ice to these places. He also invents ice boxes for uh, domestic use, which you put a lump of ice in the top and you can keep your milk, your cheese, your fish, your whatever nice and cool but his real innovation is that he realizes that the gateway to the ice business is drinks and ice cream so whenever he arrives in a place when he arrives in savannah when he arrives in charleston in 1924 when he arrives in new orleans he gives the ice away to bartenders for at least the first sort of period of time because his theory, as he writes in one of his letters to um, a guy called Stephen Cabot, who is managing one of his ice operations in the Caribbean, is that, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm not going to quite quote this accurately. He says, if a man has had his drink cold for one week, he will not go back to having it warm. And he's not wrong, particularly in those kind of climates. And, and and so, you know, that that's when the sort of 
the ice cube gets into the old fashioned, I think, is, a, is, is, is around that very era. I mean, you know, 1924, he gets to New Orleans. That's, to me, the birth of the cocktail right there. He was brilliant. Um, he was shipping to India by 1833. He was shipping to Australia by 1835. This is all hand-carved ice from lakes in New England going around the world. Wow. Um, and it is, it, 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 it's one of those brilliantly baffling moments of history that's completely forgotten because we don't need it anymore. But, you know, there, there, there's, there's this one brilliant thing. I, I think I reference, in, reference it in the book. I think it's about 1837. The ice supply dries up in Calcutta and the place goes nuts. I, all, all these people are, are just going, ah! you know, where is it? There, there are editorials written, the, written in the newspaper saying, where has our ice gone? How can we function like this? <laughs> you know, and it's, it's kind of brilliant. So yes, because of Tudor's brilliance and his determination to come into a place, bring a load of ice, stack it up, sell it cheap and turn it from being this luxury commodity for the wealthy into an everyday necessity. And I think this is the big thing, is he makes it quotidian. He makes it ordinary. He makes it something you cannot function without. That's why Jerry Thomas is able to just say, ice should be washed and set aside. Uh, because to him, it is, it is now ordinary. And even it is even as it is transforming his customer's experience, even as it is in 1862 beginning to form the basis of the very first cool chains in the United States with big, massive blocks of ice being strung in hammocks in train cabins over meat and vegetables. It, it is now an everyday thing. Um, and, and that's exactly the kind of stuff that people don't write about. And it's exactly why it's fascinating. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. So uh, coming coming back to, to wine a bit, we, we touched on chilled wine earlier. Yeah. Um, how, how long does it seem like we've been enjoying chilled wine? And, um, and, and, and I don't know, I also can't help but think about the fact that, yes, we still have, for the most part, red wines are not chilled. Um, well, they shouldn't be. There was there was briefly a fashion in Britain in some point in the nineteenth century for chilling red wine, which is an abominable thing to do. <laughs> um, and I honestly don't know what they were thinking, and I'm I'm frankly ashamed of them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but but I think the the the, the chilling of, of of wine is something that has, has has gone on for 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 ages. I we have in. Um, Athenaeus's book, uh, I can never pronounce this right, I'm going to try, the Depnostphistai, he uh, records a story of uh, the com comic playwright Diphilus going around for dinner with this uh, woman called Gunnathea, and she has snow that's been sent by one of her lovers brought in to, to chill the wine. So that's you know nearly you know, 2,500 years ago. I think that humans have always liked a cold, refreshing drink. I think that it's just part of who we are. Um, it's just that we haven't had access to it for the vast bulk of our history. And with wine in particular, we, we know that the, the Tuscans were very keen on, on chilling their white wines down um, in the sort of middle part of the last millennium. We, we, we can attest to that. And God knows those lovely flinty whites that they make are, are, are beautiful when nicely iced and cold. So they clearly knew what they were doing. 
Now, the, the book explores so many other exciting fields. I mean, you get into space exploration, medicine, the food supply chain. Um, there's a lot more invention history in there. Uh, then there's there's even, I was I was surprised and delighted by this. There's a whole chapter on the terror and the Erebus. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. I, 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 in, in part, I was excited about that because I, I very recently watched that, uh, that adaptation of Dan Simon's uh, novel, The Terror. Uh, oh, so I haven't that seen that yet. Up. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, I, I, I have not read the original book, so I can't compare it to that. But I, uh, my wife and I loved it. Thought it was terrific. Wonderful performances. It's it, it's such a fascinating story, um, and there's so much that we just don't know about what happened to these poor men. Um, I, it, it is ghastly how poorly equipped and badly prepared these men were sent into the Arctic. Um, if the boats had survived, arguably the men would. Um, but, you know, as Captain Willard tells us in Apocalypse Now, never get off the boat. Yeah, even though, like like you point out in the, in, in the book, that you know, they, were, they had a lot of very advanced technology. They had, these were steam-powered vessels. But, they, uh, they, they did. They, had, they, they were among the first um, ships in the British Navy fitted with steam engines uh, that were retractable. They had retractable propellers. They had chimneys. That could, they even had a rubber dinghy. <laughs> um, and they had a monkey called Jacko, who by all accounts was an absolute bastard. Um, they had a dog called Old Nep, who was beloved by all the letters that that, that 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 came back before they they finally went to the Arctic tell us that old nep was um was a big crew favorite uh they had a vast library they were incredibly ahead of the curve in terms of their awareness of the need to take care of the men's mental health should they be frozen in and this is one of the things they absolutely got right the real problem for them is is, is that their, their cold weather clothes were largely made of wool, which is in fact the most terrible insulator if you're in an Arctic environment. Because, you know, you do the work that needs to be done, you sweat into the wool, then you stop working, you start getting cold and the sweat in the wool freezes. And this is a problem. And nobody thought to ask the locals, Apart, weirdly, from the guy who was the first person to report back news of what happened to the Franklin Expedition, an explorer called John Ray, who was a Scottish guy. He was a surveyor. He was a surgeon. He's probably the only Arctic explorer of the era from the UK who never got a knighthood. And he was the one guy who learned how to speak to the Inuit and learned how to move like the Inuit, dress like the Inuit, uh, survive, hunt, exist in that fashion and and he is largely unique amongst those 19th century polar explorers and he was the one guy who 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 got the first the first stories the first inuit testimony of what happened to the men of the franklin expedition as tragic as it was and was rubbished for his efforts by no lesser author than the ghastly charles dickens who really you know was I, 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 I can't talk. I, I, I need to stop talking about Dickens. I can't stand the man. <laughs> he's been the bane of my life since school. I can't read his stuff. He's a racist bastard. I can't stand him. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't familiar with. I wasn't familiar with the the history of uh, of Dickens' involvement uh, uh, in all of this. He he was a great friends with Lady Jane Franklin, um, John Franklin's widow, 
And when the Ray report came in, which told terrible stories of anthropophagy and starvation and enormous suffering, he basically took to his magazine outlet, a, a periodical called Household Words, to lambast these stories and and basically say it must have been the um, barbarous Inuit who et our brave naval naval officers rather than the meeting themselves and and he couldn't he couldn't countenance the idea that a oral society could know something and tell us something that might be useful uh to him that was that was preposterous um because they couldn't write anything down therefore they're absolutely useless in his opinion and he writes this stuff down and you know we we we, we we tend to remember his novels, which I find verbose and quite dull, but are generally speaking quite open-hearted. His journalism, not so much. His journalism betrays the the full-on Victorian that he... he and, and he can be both things at once. I mean, you know, yes. I mean, and um, and I was, weirdly, I was talking to a friend on the phone earlier on. The, the only bit of Dickens that I actually like is the David Lean film, Great Expectations, which I think is a tremendous movie and a brilliant bit of talk storytelling. But one of the main reasons why it's a brilliant bit of storytelling is it doesn't have all that bloody verbiage in it. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and Lean is, 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 is brilliant at his image selection and everything else. It's a fantastic and very disturbing movie. Um, but no, Dickens and me, we're not friends. <laughs> so... Um cannibalism, Charles Dickens, cocktails, space exploration. Uh, you, you cover a lot of ground in this book. Was, was, there, was there any area in particular that you found yourself surprised that you were going to be covering? Like, well, I, I didn't think I was going to be writing about this in my book, but here I am. Well, well I, I have to confess, you've mentioned space exploration. I was going to do a chapter on space, space exploration, and then I was late on my deadline and I didn't do it. Uh, so sadly, that's not in. Maybe if there's a sequel. But... Um, the winter sports stuff mm, yes. was very interesting to me, to pit particularly the Jean-Claude Killy stuff and the way he became such a marketing phenomenon in, um, in the United States in the early 70s. And reading that Hunter Thompson article about him, that was really interesting because it never occurred to me. I, and in part, I mean, I'm... Golly, I'm 50 now. And, and so when I, when, I, when I was a kid ski coverage was just beginning to happen on British television. We had this show called magazine show called Ski Sunday and it would cover all the big um, races in Europe. And it was tremendously exciting. And and, and, and we were gripped. I, we only had three channels, so we didn't have a great deal of choice. But um, oh, it was fantastic stuff. The medical chapter as well was was was, was eye-opening, particularly Samuel Tillishman's, um, Tishman's, sorry, his work, on trying to freeze down the body of a trauma patient as quickly as possible to try and stop the um, brain damage before you can stop the bleeding. The biggest problem that you have should, should you be shot or stabbed is bleeding out and the organ failure that then follows. And what he's trying to do, and he's just going into the second phase of clinical trials right now, is to work out a way that you get the patient into the emergency room and you chill them right down as fast as you can 
to protect the brain and to protect the heart so you can then get in and you have time to deal with whatever the traumatic issue is that is causing the blood loss. And this is absolutely cutting edge stuff. And when I started writing that chapter, I had no idea that Mr. Tishman existed, Dr. Tishman. That absolutely blows my mind. It's extraordinary. I, I, I stumbled into that chapter um, because I, I, I saw a documentary back in the 90s about um, using hypothermia in open heart surgery and how it hadn't quite worked out, but it was the history of the early stages of open heart surgery and how chilling the patient and using hypothermia was really the best way to stop the heart jumping about before somebody invented the bypass machine. And so I was fascinated by the idea of how you can use hypothermia in a, in a therapeutical setting. Nothing prepared me for what Dr. Tishman is up to. And it is the most astounding stuff. And, and if it works, it's going to genuinely transform trauma medicine. Yeah, it, it, remarkable stuff, especially comparing it to um, the earlier parts of the book where you're talking about the experiences of freezing to death. Uh, I've... <laughs> I've I've been very fortunate to never experience that myself. But when you're talking about like the phase you reach where you, you're like, oh, well, I'm actually quite warm. I need to strip a few layers off. It's, I know. It's mad. And, and, and actually, you, you, when you read the accounts, it actually doesn't seem like such a bad way to go. You know, it, 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 apparently it's quite a trippy high. Um, you know, I, I, not that I want to, <laughs> not that I want to freeze to death, but, you know, if there's an option. You know, that, that, that doesn't seem like one of the worst ways in which one can step off this mortal coil. All right. Well, Fred, thanks for taking the time out of your day to chat with me about the book. The book, again, is Of Ice and Men, How We've Used Cold to Transform Humanity. As of this publication uh, of this, uh, the initial publication of this episode, the book is out in the U.S. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's coming out in the U.K. in the next couple of months? In February. Okay. Excellent. Well, I, I greatly enjoyed it. I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Uh, I, I think everyone out there will enjoy the book. Well, thank you so much, Rob. I've really enjoyed talking to you this evening. All right. Thank you. Take care, man. Thanks again to Fred. Again, the book is Of Ice and Men, How We've Used Cold to Transform Humanity. Highly recommend you check it out. There's a little something in here for everybody. Uh, just a wonderful exploration of something that you may be taking for granted right now. I didn't even think about it, but throughout the interview, uh, I, of course, had, a, had an entire container of iced water, chilled water right next to me, and I didn't even think about the connection. Thanks, as always, to Seth Nicholas Johnson for producing the show. And if you would like to reach out uh, to, to me or to Joe, uh, any of us here at the show, you can shoot us an email at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. 
Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.